You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Um. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. So, so the first thing is just simply welcome everybody who's in the lecture theatre with us this evening, but also those of you who are joining us online. We are, I think, live streaming. Yes, thumbs up for live streaming. Fantastic. Um, uh, just uh, uh, to introduce uh, myself, my name is Jane Olmeyer. I'm the director of the Trinity Long Room Hub which is our research institute in the arts and humanities, this beautiful building behind me. Um, uh, in the Trinity Long Room Hub, we do three things. The first thing we do is we celebrate the excellence of the arts and humanities at Trinity. Uh, the second thing we do is uh, interdisciplinarity. So we believe that by mixing the disciplines, the magic happens. So uh, I'm a historian, and obviously uh, uh, we've got a couple of historians here this evening, but we also have somebody from the world of uh, linguistics and uh, business. So this is just an example of how, by uh, bringing disciplines together, we're going to get some very different perspectives. Um, The third thing we do in the Trinity Long Room Hub is uh, promote public humanities, and this is a great example of it. Many of you will be familiar with our events Um, and uh, obviously we feel that it's hugely uh, important to have that uh, public uh, discussion and uh, dialogue. This is our second Behind the Headlines, which is one of our signature uh, uh, events uh, of the current academic year, Um, and I think it's very timely and very important uh, to continually ask the question of what is going on in Hong Kong? I think all of us are looking on and and actually not entirely understanding what is uh, happening. Um, And so tonight we're delighted to have a very, very distinguished uh, 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 panel uh, with us who hopefully will be able to explain that question. Because despite the extradition bill being rescinded, we know that the protests show no sign of abating, although... Obviously, it's very wonderful that there has been relative peace uh, in Hong Kong uh, for the last, what was it, 17 days, you said, Porik, and counting. Um, uh, uh, Anyway, this Behind the Headlines series has been formulated to provide some background analysis and understanding, and particularly to offer some of the uh, long-term insights that the arts and humanities uh, can bring, and to do so in a very informed but also very respectful uh, uh, way. Um, And uh, we're very happy tonight that actually uh, having uh, uh, the perspective of industry, I'll introduce Porik uh, in a moment. Um, uh, So so again, hopefully uh, we'll all uh, have a much better understanding of the current crisis. So our speakers tonight, and I'd like to introduce them in the order in which they'll speak. Our first uh, speaker is Peter Hamilton, uh, who's an assistant professor of modern Chinese history in the Department of History here in Trinity. He focuses on transnational Chinese networks of trade and migration, uh, with particular attention to the Sino-US relations, uh, the intersections between business and education, and the history of Hong Kong. Our second speaker this evening is Porik Gallagher, Trinity graduate and engineer um, who lived in Hong Kong for 10 years uh, during the 1990s and then more recently from 2007 uh, to 9. He's the former managing director of global banking and markets with HSBC uh, in Hong Kong. Uh, and tonight, uh, Porig will uh, focus on the business community in Hong Kong and also the international reaction of the corporate world to the crisis. I should also just say on a very personal note, I've had, had the pleasure of working with Porik during the time I was the Vice President for Global Relations here. This is probably going back uh, 2011, 12, 13, where he was a fabulous ambassador for Trinity. It, as it turned out, it was Sri Lanka. Um, uh, so it's lovely that you're with us this evening, uh, Porik. Our third uh, speaker tonight is um, uh, Dr. George Kwok, who is a research fellow based in the School of Linguistic Speech and Communication Sciences here at Trinity. 
uh, he focuses on the area of language and identity and contributes to the Chinese uh, uh, studies program uh, that we run. Our final uh, speaker is uh, Dr. Isabella Jackson. She's the assistant professor in Chinese studies uh, in our School of Histories and Humanities. Her research looks at uh, the modern history of China and the global and regional networks that shaped the treaty ports, which were opened to foreign traders uh, in the 19th and early 20th centuries. Uh, Isabella is also the holder of a very, very uh, prestigious Irish Research Council a Laureate Award. So she's, uh, uh, Isabella, thank you for, I was going to say you're on research leave, so it's, it's lovely that you're, you're here uh, uh, with us. I, I, I don't know if you've been following the press. Isabella was in yesterday's Irish Times. Um, uh, George's article has, I think, appeared earlier this evening on the journal.ie, uh, and, and Peter is going to have something coming out at the weekend. So there's clearly a lot of interest uh, in uh, this uh, uh, topic. And as always, uh, you will have your say. So a couple of housekeeping um, uh, uh, just things. Um, uh, we will open up the floor to Q&A. Uh, as usual, I'll be inviting you to introduce yourself, but to please keep your questions quick and direct. Uh, we're not inviting further. We want to try and get as many questions in as possible. Um, uh, and the other thing is we are being live streamed, so just to bear that in, in mind. But it also means that the podcast will be on our website uh, in the next day or two. So if anybody wants to revisit the conversation this evening or to recommend it to others, you'll be able to do so. Um, those of you who are into social media, uh, we'd love you to join us on Twitter uh, by tagging at TLRHub and using the hashtag HubMatters. I'm, I'm a novice to Twitter, so that's what I'm doing. I'm tweeting. I'm not answering my emails. It just takes me forever to actually to, to, to tweet. So, uh, But again, it's, I think it's great when we get that discussion going on uh, uh, social media. So without further ado, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like you to join me in welcoming our first uh, 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 speaker this evening, uh, uh, Peter Hamilton. Peter. <laughs> Thank you so much for that warm introduction, and thank you to everyone for coming out tonight. Um, so again, I'm a historian, so that will be part of my mission here, is to provide historical context. I think you all probably know that this crisis began in June in response to Carrie Lam, the chief executive's proposed extradition bill. Due to the, due to the terms of the 1997 handover, Hong Kong maintains separate legal and criminal justice systems from mainland China. But this bill would have made it possible for residents to be sent to the mainland for trial and punishment. Although this bill has been pulled in September, this bill was really just a spark that ignited a long-simmering anger among particular segments of Hong Kong society. And this anger reflects four decades of generational and cultural change, as well as leadership failures, I would argue, by three governments, the Hong Kong government, the British government, and the Chinese government in Beijing. Put very bluntly or simply, None of these governments has ever asked Hong Kong people what they wanted or allowed them to assert genuine democratic control over their future. And so with limited time today, I'm going to go through three key points about what we call the handover process or the negotiations and treaties of the 1980s and 1990s that led Hong Kong to be transferred from a British crown colony to a special administrative region of the People's Republic of China on July 1st, 1997. And these three points are, one, the long delay in deciding Hong Kong's future. It was surprisingly late uh, that this was decided how this would happen. The actual terms of the Sino-British Joint Declaration and what you probably have heard of as one country, two systems. And finally, the impact of the Tiananmen Square Massacre. As much as these protests are about the extradition bill, police brutality, and other issues, at base, I would argue, it's really about the handover process, an unfinished business from the handover process. The first major point is that Hong Kong's future was a subject deliberately avoided by all sides throughout the Cold War, in particular the life of Mao Zedong. To step back to review, Hong Kong had been taken by the British Empire in three different pieces over the 19th century, first taking Hong Kong Island in 1841, then the Kowloon Peninsula in 1860, and finally forcing China to sign a 99-year lease on the new territories 
kind of wider outer portion of Hong Kong in 1898. And that's what set up, that lease is what set up the 1997 deadline. After a wartime Japanese occupation, British rule was restored in 1945 with very active US assistance. But as decolonization accelerated around the world and the communists won China's civil war in 1949, Hong Kong became a very unusual and ambiguous interstitial space at the intersection of multiple empires. Its future was a wide open question but at no time was independence ever seriously considered by any group. While the New People's Republic rejected the imperialism by which British Hong Kong had been created, Hong Kong was not a particularly pressing issue for Mao's government. Mao, in particular, repeatedly expressed disinterest in this subject. Simultaneously, in the years surrounding 1949, Hong Kong received roughly one million refugees fleeing the New People's Republic creating a humanitarian crisis and opportunities for both Washington and Taipei, the US and Taiwanese governments, to extend aid and use Hong Kong as a propaganda weapon in the Cold War battle for hearts and minds. And this outside influence in Hong Kong did anger Beijing and alerted it to the uh, unwelcome possibilities in Hong Kong, as well as making colonial official nervous. Over the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, Hong Kong's economy took off as a manufacturing powerhouse, and a local Hong Kong culture and identity grew up among the city of former refugees. This local identity was still very proudly Chinese, but cherished many different traditions and values from the communist mainland, from the, uh, the Cantonese dialect to the free exercise of religion and very freewheeling entrepreneurialism. But what would happen in 1997 remained a subject that was studiously avoided by the Hong Kong government, by London, and by Beijing. And the evidence suggests that most Hong Kong people really didn't think about it that much either at the time. Most Hong Kong people were far more concerned with making an economic livelihood, and if opportunity arose, migrating overseas. And this remained the situation until Mao Zedong's death in 1976. But then, as Deng Xiaoping rose to power and China began to change economic directions, something Hong Kong people watched very closely, increasing economic engagement shifted the political climate. And the colonial government, under then the governor, Sir Murray Maclios, began to broach the subject of Hong Kong's future. In particular, in 1980 and 81, this topic really gained momentum as local companies expressed concern about investing in Hong Kong real estate if they didn't know what was going to happen in 1997. So formal negotiations only began in 1982. So already just 15 years left before the deadline. There's no plan, per se. The initial proposal of Margaret Thatcher's government was to return legal sovereignty over Hong Kong in exchange for continued British administration for say another 20 or 40 years to delay, in essence. This proposal, for reasons that are debated, angered Deng Xiaoping, and he made clear at that time, in 1982, that the People's Republic intended to regain full administration over all of Hong Kong in 1997. So that's the key context that structures my second point about the Sino-British Joint Declaration and one country, two systems. When China's official position that it would regain administration over Hong Kong came to light in 1982, the Hong Kong public became very concerned. The stock and real estate markets in particular began to plummet, and it spoke to a profound unease in the, in the public about a possible communist takeover. Beijing had no desire to damage Hong Kong, though, both for reasons of face and because Deng Xiaoping rightly understood that Hong Kong could be a very valuable asset for China's economic reforms. And so it's around 1982 that this idea of one country, two systems, really begins to gain traction. Many people now claim credit for inventing this idea, and you should be skeptical of all of their claims. <laughs> With catchy slogans such as Ma Jia Pao, Wu Jiao Tiao, or the horses will continue to run and the dancing will continue, Deng Xiaoping very actively and publicly reassured Hong Kong people that nothing really would change in their life after 1997. Simultaneously, though, as negotiations began between London and Beijing, it was Deng Xiaoping who personally rejected any formal participation by Hong Kong people in those negotiations, under the argument that Beijing already represented the local Chinese population. 
These negotiations led to the signing of the Sino-British Joint Declaration in December 1984, which promised that Hong Kong would return to China as a, quote, special administrative region on July 1st, 1997, and that this SAR, as we say, would, quote, enjoy a high degree of autonomy except in foreign and defense affairs, and thus, quote, Hong Kong's previous capitalist system and lifestyle shall remain unchanged for 50 years from 1997. And that's the promise of one country, two systems. That's meaning that Hong Kong would retain, and this is enumerated in the document, full civil rights, a separate currency, separate customs arrangements, and even a separate Olympic team. The joint declaration was not subjected to a local referendum, though. There was no vote on this. But it was generally well received by the Hong Kong public, and the local stock and property markets began to recover as the 13-year countdown began from 1984. And so then this brings me to my final point, the kind of the impact of Tiananmen Square, and that the tentative trust that was building between 1984 and June 1989 was heavily damaged by the Tiananmen Square massacre. Over a quarter of Hong Kong people marched in solidarity with the students in Beijing before the massacre, and another million turned out afterward. To many Hong Kong people watching the massacre on live television was a very searing personal moment and a warning about their own potential future. Many took steps to ensure that that would not happen to them. Between 1989 and 1997, about 600,000 Hong Kong people migrated overseas to Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and the United States, particularly through investment for citizenship schemes. In turn, Tiananmen reshaped the final drafts of Hong Kong's basic law, the mini-constitution for Hong Kong, and the agenda of its final governor, its final colonial governor, Chris Patton. Patton unilaterally and provocatively accelerated democratic reforms in Hong Kong, which in Beijing's view was a clear violation of the joint declaration. And thus, Beijing loathes Patton today. Regarding the basic law, pro-democratic forces successfully rephrased what is Article 45 to enshrine that the ultimate aim of the Hong Kong government legally is obligated to uh, strive for, quote, universal suffrage upon nomination by a broadly representative nominating committee in accordance with democratic procedures. And so Tiananmen changed the tone and the tenor of what the handover meant for a lot of people. And even though the handover went well in 1997, I would argue, kind of the point I would leave you with, is that the changes made in the early 1990s uh, are kind of part of the unresolved formula here, what's undergirding the surface, particularly the promise of universal suffrage, which has still not been implemented, but is in the Constitution as something the Hong Kong government must continue to work for. Thank you. Professor Olimar, thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to, to come and uh, address uh, an august audience in, in, uh, in, in Trinity this evening. Um, as a banker in Hong Kong for many years, uh, I'm here, guess what, to talk about business and the commercial reality of the last few months and its effect on, on Hong Kong. Um, first of all, starting, I suppose, with the, the Hang Seng Index, I mean, the first sort of you know, data point, if you will. Checking earlier... The Hang Seng closed today at 26,000, a little shy of 26,400. This day last year, the market closed at 25,700. So actually, despite everything else, the market has gone up 3% in the last year. Um, we had a, a major high in the market in April of this year. And with the effect of the first couple of weeks, and the first couple of weekends of the crisis in June, a major hit, the market fell 5 or 6%. But actually, as the crisis deepened and uh, it got even tougher on the streets, um, the market rebounded. Uh, and we have, uh, we've seen it come back to, as I say, where it is now, which is just 3% up on where it was last year. The Hong Kong dollar, which, as we all know, is pegged to the US dollar within a very tight range, has had no problem at all during this phase, by and large. Uh, now, you know, in the 20 years since the handover, uh, in the year after the handover itself, we had the Asian financial crisis, GDP fell 5%, uh, 
the dollar came under huge, uh, huge attack, uh, and was the peg was very likely to break during that during that phase, but it, it didn't thankfully happen. But that hasn't been an issue this time. In fact, during the SARS outbreak in 2003, the dollar came under more effect than it has in the last few months. Now, clearly, we're not out of the woods yet. I'm not saying this thing is finished, but it is remarkable that here we are. Uh, four or five months into the crisis, and if you were looking at Hong Kong from the moon and you were just looking at data points, you wouldn't notice anything at all. Interestingly also, last week, Alibaba uh, had its um, uh, secondary share listing in Hong Kong, um, called by the Chinese authorities the Great Return to the Motherland. This was the, the, the biggest listing, the biggest capital raising on the planet this year. Um, surpassing Uber in June by three billion, so a total raising of 11.7 billion U.S. dollars, uh, a large, very successful issuance. Um, again, showing the robustness of the Hong Kong market. Hong Kong this year has raised more capital uh, than than any other market in the world, including you know uh, New York and London, uh, for the second year running. So again, you know, sailing sailing through. However. Uh, you know, we have seen GDP fall by a couple of percent in the third quarter. Definitively, it's going to be worse than that in the fourth quarter, so we will have Hong Kong in recession. So as we're going on our sort of New Year breaks, the word around the world will be, oh my God, Hong Kong has entered recession. That is, on, that is definitively going to happen. And that will be the first time since the Asian crisis when it's entered recession in 98. Uh, so that will make, you know, a very poor reading for China. Um, but that is undoubtedly going to happen. Now, as I say, four times before in 20 years, we've had sort of a relative downturn in Hong Kong, um, but the market has bounced back. Hong Kong has bounced back very strongly uh, in subsequent years. The year after the Asian financial crisis, we were up at 6% growth levels, so you know, huge, huge levels of growth in those, in those days. So there's a feeling on the street in certain areas and certainly among the international community that Hong Kong will bounce out of this. Uh, I took a lot of soundings in the last week or so from expat colleagues, from local colleagues, from people in, in the legal profession, from people in retail, from people in the services industry in Hong Kong, um, looking at different industries and the effects, the effects on them. Looking certainly at the finance industry, and this can be widened out to most sectors, um, certainly people have dusted off their contingency plans. So most companies, be they financial or service, um, have a backup site primarily in the new territories, the area which overlooks southern China, or a little bit further afield up, up north in Shenzhen. That has either been tested now or actually used um, there were maybe five or six Mondays ago when things got really rough after a, 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 a very big Sunday. Those, those sites were typically used by large corporates. But looking, at, looking further into the, into the future, you know, what are the financial services companies actually saying? We have seen reports that you know, three billion in FDI has moved from Hong Kong to Singapore alone in the last four months. I personally think that's Singapore spin. I can't reconcile that figure with anything I can see that X firm has moved such an amount, etc., giving an aggregate figure of three billion. I just can't see that. I think that's a good piece of Singapore spin and a good, a, a good comms firm from Singapore uh, at work there. Nevertheless, definitively, banks, uh, fintech companies, hedge funds are all looking at what could be moved. Um, if, if things got really bad. But the nub of the issue, frankly, is companies, finance companies specifically, are not in Hong Kong for Hong Kong domestic business. They're in Hong Kong for China business. So nobody is, frankly, going to leave Hong Kong and fundamentally set up their China business desk out of Singapore uh, or perhaps... Uh, more harshly out of Tokyo any time soon, because fundamentally your pipeline would disappear in a matter of in a matter of months. So whilst people are worried, um, this is all about China's uh, China's pipeline. If you take the view, which I certainly do from a commercial and business perspective, that we are only 20, 25 years into 
the Chinese century and that China business can only go one way and probably heavily one way, well, then all firms are going to stay uh, rooted to Hong Kong until, and let's hope it doesn't happen, we had something like uh, a Tiananmen Square-esque event in Hong Kong. God forbid. I don't think that is on the cards at all. Uh, I think the world is a very, very different place since 1989. Beijing is a very different regime since 89. So I don't see the possibility at all of a, a harsh, uh, firm hand approach to Hong Kong anytime soon. So firms will look to their backup plans, uh, will look to uh, making sure they know what, let's say, desks within a banking frame they could move to Singapore or, or a Tokyo, but they aren't going to exercise that, that button or press that button until uh, there, was, there, there, there would be a huge negative event. People may ask, well, why don't firms, frankly, move to Shenzhen or Shanghai, the two big domestic uh, Chinese financial markets? Shanghai and Shenzhen are, are massive markets in their own right. The reality is uh, the Hong Kong rule of law, the legal system in Hong Kong, which is based, obviously, uh, on good old British law that we know uh, well in, the, in, in, in Ireland, um, and the lack of capital controls in Hong Kong, mean no firms of scale are really going to move to a Shenzhen or a Shanghai anytime soon. Um, you know, if you look at what goes on in Shanghai with, you know, with, with, with capital controls um, and you know, if you had to exercise a lien or exercise a mortgage uh, in Shanghai or Shenzhen, well, good luck to you. Um, you know, we don't really want to uh, be put in that position. Um, so we like to exercise... Uh, um, you know, a, a, a mortgage or a lien under, under British law, basically, or under Hong Kong law, which is fundamentally uh, the same thing. Uh, and we'll use a good American or English firm based in Hong Kong with which to do that. So it's, it's, really, it's, it's, really, um, it's really as simple as that. Firms will not move unless they absolutely have to. Personal view, we will see pragmatism over the next number of months uh, on, on both sides. There will have to be a little bit of give from China, and we will see a, a resolution or a, 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 a pragmatic resolution to these, um, these issues uh, in, the, in the not too distant future. Thank you. Good evening, everyone. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's my honor to speak in here. When we are talking about what is going on in Hong Kong, I suppose many people would really want to know is how is the protest going to end and what is Hong Kong going from there? To understand that, I think we should look at China's approach to Hong Kong in the past few years to get the things into context. So I don't think the extradition bill alone, just as Peter said, I don't think the extradition bill alone would stir up such a huge amount of people to take to the streets to say no to the government. I think in the past few years, the approach, China's approach to Hong Kong really made more many Hong Kong people very angry. Um, perhaps you still remember the umbrella movement in 2014. In 2014, the Chinese government decided that there would be no genuine democracy in Hong Kong. So whoever ran for the chief executive, they had to be pre-screened by a nominating committee dominated by uh, pro-Beijing members so that of course from the perspective of the Chinese government this is what universal suffrage means but for Hong Kong people it is not what they were expecting in the past three decades and then another example is in 2016 when six pro-democracy lawmakers who were elected by the people but 
because the government said that they were not sincerely taking the oath, so they were disqualified. Then Beijing also stepped in to interpret the basic law, the mini constitution of Hong Kong, so that it gives people the idea that the one country, two system is not respected. Then, of course, now this year, the government proposed the extradition bill, and that's what brought Hong Kong to the situation now. And then, so, the movement, let's, let's call it movement. Uh, so, the movement has been going on for nearly six months now. And then, what's next? It depends on how people look at, how China and Hong Kong look at the one country, two system formula. Do Hong Kong people still trust Beijing to uphold one country, two system? Do Beijing, do Hong Kong people still think that Beijing would respect rule of law, Hong Kong's independent judiciary? And on the other hand, it also depends on whether Beijing thinks that Hong Kong is useful. So there are two levels to it in terms of useful. First, whether Hong Kong is useful to become a model so that Taiwan would be willing to become part of China. It seems like it is failing. There is a very popular saying in both Taiwan and Hong Kong, today Hong Kong, tomorrow Taiwan. So Taiwanese people don't have any trust in one country, two systems anymore. So the first function that Hong Kong serves is gone. The second function, it serves as China's financial hub. If the Chinese government thinks that Hong Kong no longer serves that purpose, then China may speed up its process to assimilate Hong Kong. So Hong Kong will become just an ordinary city in China. So is Hong Kong still contributing China? Uh, the answer is yes. Uh, just last year alone, uh, Chinese companies raised 64.2 billion globally through IPO, initial public offerings. So 64.2 billion US dollars. Among these 64.2 billion, 50, 35, 35 billion was from Hong Kong. So Hong Kong was very important for China to raise capital globally. And Hong Kong is also very important for the internationalization of RMB, the Chinese currency. So, but it doesn't mean China wouldn't do anything. Over the past 10 years or so, the Chinese government is always trying to speed up the process that made Shanghai and Shenzhen to become another financial hub. Uh, it is not sure whether the Chinese government want them to replace Shanghai, but it is obvious that the Chinese government want, them, want an alternative to Hong Kong. So if they succeed in replacing Hong Kong, or at least sharing some of, Hong, some of the Hong Kong's responsibilities now, then the, Hong Kong, the Chinese government will also speed up the assimilation process. Then, but in the short term, I'm optimistic in the short term because uh, the government, the pro-government parties in last week's election, they had a landslide defeat in the district council's election, and that will affect their election next year heavily. Next year's election is about the legislature. So if the government lose control of its legislature, it will be a disaster for Beijing. So that the Chinese government, in my opinion, they would do something, and the local government will also do something that is not detestable to Beijing to try to cool down the current situation so that they will not lose the election next year and another, another election about the chief executive of Hong Kong in 2022. But 
once the pro-government camp and the pro-Beijing camp got back on their feet, I don't see why Beijing would go easy on Hong Kong because as a general approach, Beijing is now tightening its control over Xinjiang. It is tightening its control over the mainland. And I don't see any reason why they would go easy on Hong Kong. So the assimilation process will continue. Maybe there are some hiccups from the perspective of the Chinese government, but it will go on. And, uh, but I think a lot of Hong Kong people can see it coming, and that's why so many of them see it as an end game. And that also explains why people are protesting, even, Carrie Lam, even after Carrie Lam have withdrawn the extradition bill. Thank you very much. Good evening. The protests pose a serious dilemma for the Beijing government. They're the greatest threat to communist rule since the massacre um, of 1989, the protest that led to that. Um, the government needs to discredit this protest in Hong Kong, internationally, and perhaps most importantly, um, in mainland China. Claiming that the protesters are separatists in hoc to foreign powers is an effective way to do this. Since communist ideology has declined as a unifying force in China, nationalism has increasingly taken its place as a means to unify Chinese society. Patriotic Chinese are particularly sensitive to suggestions of foreign intervention on Chinese soil for sound historical reasons, as I will explain. This evening, I'll show why Beijing blames the protests on outside interference, why this is such an emotive and potent argument in China and why that matters. The protests turned the corner from purely peaceful demonstrations to include violent anti-government actions on the 1st of July, the anniversary of the handover from British rule, when young protesters broke into the Hong Kong legislature and draped the colonial era flag over the podium of the debating chamber. The flag combines the British Union Jack with the dragon and lion motif and instantly evokes the former colony's status as one of the last vestiges of the British Empire. It may seem ironic that a movement calling for democracy and greater freedom should use a symbol of the imperialist past, but it shows the protesters' anger with Beijing and hope for foreign support. For a minority who are often too young to remember British rule themselves, there is even a form of nostalgia for what they perceive to have been a period of comparative freedom, clean government, and rule of law. Protesters have also flown the stars and stripes, initially hoping for American support, and recently in large numbers welcoming Washington's new legislation, requiring an annual assessment to confirm that Hong Kong enjoys sufficient autonomy to benefit from favorable trading terms with the US and threatening sanctions for human rights abuses. Now, only a minority of protesters are waving such flags, and others among them have criticized them for it, realizing it may not help their cause. Some have even suggested there are Chinese government plants encouraging the use of foreign flags to support the claim that foreign influence is behind the protests and to paint the protesters as unpatriotic. It certainly plays into the government narrative that foreign forces lay behind the protests. For example, China Daily, the primary Chinese state media outlet, described the protesters as being, quote, hoodwinked by foreign forces seeking to create havoc in Hong Kong for political or economic gain. More specifically, the Chinese foreign ministry claimed the protests were the creation of the US and spoke of the US black hand in the protests. Spokesperson Hua Chunying explained her suspicion was because, quote, many U.S. faces appeared among the protesters, even U.S. national flags. What role does the U.S. play exactly in the protests? The U.S. owes the world an explanation. Beijing accused foreign officials of fanning the flames of Hong Kong after Mike Pompeo, Nancy Pelosi and others met with leading Hong Kong protesters. And a former Hong Kong chief executive claimed that the US and Taiwan were the masterminds behind the protests. 
However, the Hong Kong police, who are certainly no friends of the protest, they're perhaps hated more than the Hong Kong government by the protesters, stated categorically in August that there is no indication of foreign influence over the protests. China made similar claims about the Tiananmen protests 30 years ago, um, claiming they were stoked by foreigners. But extensive research since then has shown no significant foreign hand. So why the emphasis on foreign influence? Well, Hong Kong is associated for many Chinese with the Treaty of Nanjing imposed on China by Britain at the end of the First Opium War, ceding part of Chinese territory to foreign control, as we've heard. Chinese schoolchildren, museum visitors, viewers of TV documentaries are taught that this began a century of humiliation for China that included a series of unequal treaties with numerous foreign powers and the devastating Sino-Japanese War, which was the theater of the Second World War in China. Chinese were treated as second-class citizens in their own country, and the opium trade imposed on China by Britain and Japanese um, military um, atrocities are just the most egregious examples of the damage done to China by imperialism. The Communist Party claims it brought the humiliation to an end when it came to power, although in fact its enemies, the Nationalist Party under Chiang Kai-shek, successfully negotiated the end of the unequal treaties during the Second World War before the Communists came to power. So the Communist Party takes credit for restoring national dignity to China, and any foreign intervention is an affront to that national pride. The Chinese-language edition of the Global Times directly referenced this colonial past, mocking British Foreign Secretary Jeremy Hunt's assertion that Britain would help that, um, ensure the joint declaration was adhered to. They stated that nobody, quote, believes the UK will send its only aircraft carrier to China's coast, this is not the 19th century when the Opium War broke out. After the British government called for Beijing to respect the one country, two systems principle, the Chinese ambassador's criticism was widely covered in China. The most widely circulated newspaper's headline, British politician indulges in bygone colonial fantasy, reflected Beijing's view. British comments on Hong Kong should be dismissed due to their imperialist past. American, German, and other foreign government statements on the protests are also dismissed as foreign intervention in domestic affairs. And the US, Germany, and the other nations targeted are among those who enjoyed imperialist privileges in China in the past. Chinese readers are reminded of the century of national humiliation to help discredit foreign criticism and to discredit the protests themselves. Beijing's anger at even carefully balanced foreign comments calling for both sides to avoid violence is palpable. The foreign ministry addressed Washington directly saying, quote, Hong Kong affairs are entirely China's internal affairs and you are neither qualified nor entitled to wantonly comment on them. Mind your own business and stay out of Hong Kong affairs. The government may sincerely believe that foreign interference lies behind the protests Indicating, I think, an insecurity and perhaps the fear of a revolution like those that swept through former Soviet republics in the Arab world. It may also be inconceivable to them that Hong Kong Chinese could oppose Chinese rule. So foreign interfer interfer interference helps explain the apparently inexplicable protests. Beijing has the mainland audience in mind and they hope that nationalistic distrust of foreign interference based on historical grounds will lead mainland Chinese to dismiss the Hong Kong protests as being the result of foreign interference. But I'd suggest that with up to two million protesters, a movement on this scale is not due to a few rabble-rousers under foreign influence. As it happens, foreigners in Hong Kong, as we were hearing from Porig, are less likely to support the protests than Hong Kong Chinese due to the disruption caused to business. The result of the recent local elections, with huge gains for pro-democracy parties, show that Beijing's efforts to cast the protests as foreign-backed and against Hong Kong's interests have not convinced the majority of voters. But it is worth bearing this history in mind to show how understandable it is for China to resist and to resent any suggestion of foreign interference. That's why China's historical experience of imperialism matters. Unfortunately, it also makes it unlikely that international condemnation of police brutality against the protests will achieve much at all. Thank you.